It's my assignment to talk this session about fostering churches together, to discuss the uh, basis of uh, Christian unity. Let me say a word of prayer, and we'll get going with our time together. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you, bless you, and praise you for what we have heard and learned and experienced thus far in the early stages of our time together. And we look forward to all that you have in store for us in the days to come. Even now, we ask that you would renew our strength and focus our minds and ready our hearts to encounter the Christ through the truth of your word. I pray that you would help me to speak faithfully, clearly, and that your name would be glorified by the fruit that comes from this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to spend our time primarily in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. where the Apostle Paul writes, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those, to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. I have lived and served in Jacksonville, Florida for the past 11 or so years, but I grew up in this city. My father served in Los Angeles, a local church for 40 years, and after his death, I was called to succeed him as the pastor of that local church. I was 17 years old when I was called to pastor that church. I always have to qualify and say that's I'm not giving that as a recommendation. That's just my biography. Uh, But even though I started pastoring at the age of 17, I didn't learn to drive until several years later. Those first years of my pastorate, the deacons would drive me around everywhere I went. And one day, I assumed the chairman determined that enough was enough. So he told me that uh, he was coming to my apartment the next morning at a specific time and that he wanted me to go somewhere with him. And I said, sure. And when he showed up at my house at 8 o'clock the next morning, he walked me outside and outside was a driving instructor to teach me how to drive. (laughs) And after I finally finished the instructions, the the chairman took me to the DMV and 
I got my driver's license, and then that afternoon, I got my first car. It was a Wednesday, April 29th, 1992. That afternoon, after I got the car, I went to the office to prepare to teach Bible study and then go across the town to preach another service. And at some point during my preparation, I took a break to turn on the TV and catch up on whatever news that I had missed. And all over the news was the announcement that a semi-valley jury had voted to equip that day four LAPD officers who were charged uh, with the beating of Rodney King. My preparation was thrown off for the rest of the day. I kept watching until a short time later, I saw, saw four black youth yank a white truck driver, Reginald Denny, from his truck and beat him on the corner of Florence and Normandy. During that Bible study, I advised my members who were to travel with me to just go straight home, but I went on to preach. While I was preaching, a riot broke out in the city. I will never forget turning onto the freeway that night, and everywhere I looked, there were balls of fire that lit up the night. When it was over, 53 people were dead, 2,383 people were injured, more than 7,000 fires were started, 3,100 businesses were looted, and nearly a billion dollars in damage, damages were suffered. Riots ended only when the military was called in, but an, an important turning point happened when Rodney King, the man at the center of it all, appeared on TV. He was obviously overwhelmed and at a loss for words. And in his stammering remarks, King asked simply, can we all just get along? Rodney King is now dead, but the question lives on, does it not? Personal problems, family issues, city needs, racial divisions, political infighting, terrorist threats, and international conflict all beg the question, can we all just get along? Is true peace possible? What does it take for love to conquer hate and unity to replace division and kindness to end hostility? I believe the answer is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. There, we find God's plan for peace, and I will not hold you in suspense. The plan is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can bring peace with God and one another. Only Jesus can bring peace with God and one another. One of the reasons I was asked to talk about this topic is that some years ago, our church in Jacksonville began to pray about 
planting a new church in our city. We determined a section of the city, Orange Park, where we believed the church should be planted and went to our local Baptist Association for advice to learn more about the community. And at the end of the meeting, the missions director said to us that I may reach out to you soon to give you some news, but if there's no news, I won't reach out. But if you hear from me, you know there's news, and if not, there's not. And as soon as we got in the car, the men with me said, what in the world should we do with that? I said, I couldn't even understand that, much less process what that meant. A couple of months later, there was actually news to share. He invited us to meet with him at a local church in Orange Park, predominantly white Southern Baptist church. Our was predominantly black Southern Baptist church. The pastor had died a few years ago, and the church went into steep decline and was preparing to lose its facilities. They wanted to talk to us about turning the facilities over to us. I left the meeting and agreed to go home and talk to our leaders about it with no expectation that there would be any interest in this whatsoever. And to my surprise, our leadership and our membership all saw the hand of God at work in this. So we began to move forward. And during our discussions, I I was waiting for the local church, Ridgewood Baptist Church, to talk to us about what their transition process was going to be, but it, it hadn't come up. So finally, I just had to broach the subject and ask, if this goes forward, what, what will your transition process be? And they, they simply said to us that they would love to just join us in our work. We were quite enthused about it. And as both congregations prayed and met, we agreed to merge together. This was taking place, mind you, during unrest all over the country over racial matters. Our own city was still engulfed in racial tension over the shooting of a young black man at a gas station in Jacksonville, not far from where my family lives. Yet in the midst of this, the Lord was making these two 100-year-old churches live what we say we believe. This past January marks five years since these two churches merged together. And there's a lot I could say about the lessons we have learned over the course of these years about fostering spiritual unity in the midst of so many differences among us. The importance of God-centered worship. The priority of biblical preaching. Partnership in the gospel, Christ-like and humble servanthood, mutual care for one another have, have all strengthened the bond of peace that is ours in Christ. But I think it would just be most helpful if 
for me to emphasize the most important lesson. It is the message of Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. Only Jesus can bring peace with God and with one another. In fact, in our own experience, to the degree we have focused on Christ, we have enjoyed spiritual unity. To the degree we have focused on anything else, there has been division and disharmony. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 gives three reasons to look to Jesus alone for peace. Let me offer them to you. The first thing the passage says to us is that Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. During the process of our church merger, uh, the leaders of both congregations during a meeting began to discuss what I should be preaching. That I was spending time on at both churches. What, what should I be preaching to help foster unity? Someone asked the question simply, what are you preaching now? And I happened to be preaching through the book of Ephesians. And he, Pastor Michael said, why not just keep preaching Ephesians? During this process, as we were praying about God fostering unity among us, I was preaching through Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, of course, is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 10 describe salvation in personal terms. Verses 11 through 22 describe salvation in cultural terms. Verses 1 through 10 tell us how the Lord makes Christians, verses 11 through 22, tells us how the Lord made the church. Verses 11 through 13, Paul addresses the Gentile members of the church at Ephesus, saying, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verses 14 through 18, Paul explains how we got from where we were to where we are. He says that true peace only comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. On one hand, there is peace in the person of Christ. Micah chapter 5, verse 5 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah King. It simply says, and he shall be their peace. This prophecy is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 declares, For he himself is our peace. Christ is the source of our peace. Christ is the embodiment of our peace. Christ is the personification of our peace. In fact, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 calls him the prince of peace. 
He himself is our peace. In fact, it is emphatic. He and he alone is our peace. John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. One of the consequences of sin is a lack of peace. Psalm 34, verses 11 through 14 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Psalmist says, if you want to live a good life, seek peace and pursue it. But the question is, where is peace to be found? Paul says, he himself is our peace. You cannot be at peace with God or others without Christ. Peace comes when you run to the cross and repent of your sins and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is peace in the person of Christ But on the other hand, he says there is peace in the work of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here are two aspects of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ that prove he himself is our peace. First, Paul says he has made us both one. Verse 12 describes Gentiles as alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. But in Christ, these polarized groups have become one. Christ did not make the Gentiles a part of Israel, and Christ did not cause the two to coexist as separate but equal. He made them both one. Or can use comments here. Jesus didn't Christianize the Jews or Judaize the Gentiles. He didn't create a half-breed. He made an entirely new man. The two have become one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ethnic, gender, and cultural distinctions do not define Christians. Blood is not thicker than water if that water is called baptism. In Christ, we have become a whole new race. He has made us both one, but also he has broken down the dividing wall. He himself is our peace, says verse 14, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
There were various courts in the temple in Jerusalem. One was the court of the Gentiles, the only place the Gentiles were welcome. Paul says Christ has broken down the dividing wall. The temple in Jerusalem continued to stand after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It was still standing when Paul wrote this letter. So the point is not a spiritual attitude. It's about a rather a spiritual attitude, not merely a physical structure. In other words, hostility can build a wall without using bricks. Hostility between Jews and Gentiles was a separating wall, but Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? Verse 14 answers, in his flesh. This is a reference to the incarnation and Crucifixion of Jesus, his righteous life and his atoning death reconcile sinners to God and to one another. Brothers, how can we proclaim the message of reconciliation to God and not live the message of reconciliation with one another? Jesus Christ is our peace, but secondly, the text says that Jesus Christ made peace for us. Jesus Christ made peace for us. Verse 14 says Christ is our peace. Verse 15 says Christ has made peace for us. In verses 15 and 16, we see three ways Christ has made peace for us. First, Christ made peace through the law. How did he make peace for us? By Verse 15, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This is the only place the terms law, commandments, and ordinances are used in the same verse. It is an emphatic reminder that God has a righteous standard that none of us can reach. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we have broken God's law. We have disobeyed God's commands. We have violated God's ordinances. But Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus did not abolish the law in the sense of rendering it meaningless. He he moved it out of the way by fulfilling the righteous standards of the law. Or as Paul says in Romans 10 verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ made peace through the law, but then he says Christ made peace at the cross. Why did he make peace for us? Verse 15 Verse 16 says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ has made peace for us by reconciling us to God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator, Between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ reconciled us both to God in one body. Verse 16 tells us the means by which Christ did it. 
through the cross. Colossians 2.14 says, God made us alive in Christ by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We, we broke God's law, all of us. God had our rap sheet, but God nailed it to the cross. And the blood of Jesus covers our sins to reconcile us to God in one body. William McDonald simply comments that the cross is God's answer to racial discrimination, segregation, anti-Semitism, bigotry, and every form of strife before men and between men. We have been reconciled by the blood of the cross. Christ has made peace, he says, in the church. Verse 16 says, the proof that Christ has made peace for us is that he's made us one body. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Brothers, we are one in Christ. Verse 16 says he killed the, the hostility. This tells us the barrier to peace among people is, is sin. That's <laughs> why no human strategy for reconciling man will ever work. Only God's plan for peace works to reconcile man because Only God's plan for peace in Christ addresses the true problem that divides us, sin. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, but when they sinned, they hid from God and from one another. Sin separates us from God and one another, but Christ has killed the hostility. The cross binds us together. So we must not build any dividing walls of hostility in the church or allow any to stand. Marriages end over so-called irreconcilable differences. But there's no such thing as an irreconcilable difference if Jesus killed the hostility between us. So it is with the church. Church claims the holy God has reconciled with sinful man through the blood and righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament proof is that Jews and Gentiles, as polarized as they were, have been reconciled in Christ. How can the world believe Christ has reconciled us to God? We will not be reconciled to one another in Christ. Christ's sake, we must tear down dividing walls of hostility among us. In in some instances, this will require some big steps of faith. But pastors, in many instances, it'll only require some small steps. Twelve years ago, when I moved to Jacksonville, a friend 
told me, when you get there, call this pastor and he'll be the best friend you have in the city. When he told me that, I laughed. The pastor he named was a pastor of large, big church in the middle of downtown. There, there, I had no expectation I'd get to meet him, much less we become close friends. When I moved to town, I made my way to the various local churches to introduce myself to the pastors in town. And someone said, are you going to reach out to that downtown church, which is literally five blocks from our church? I did. That pastor did not invite me to come down to his office to meet with him. He asked, could he come to my office to pray with me? And day by day, it's still hard, 12 years later, to to walk in my office without remembering that sight of that dear pastor kneeling in my study, praying for me and my wife and my children and our congregation that was in much trouble when I arrived. And, And he just came down the street and befriended a a pastor and a brother in Christ, even though it would cost him much more than it would cost me. He became my friend. He invited me to come down to preach at his church and invited not only me, but invited our choir to come down and sing Shock the daylights out of his church. (laughs) We invited him down to preach, and he brought his choir and shocked the daylights out of our church. And yet, as a result of that, a friendship and a bond developed, Not, not, not not between just two pastors, but between two congregations that were five blocks away from each other, but for many years might as well have been across the country from one another. And it was because of those small steps of kindness and friendship and partnership in the gospel that our church was later able to take bigger steps of faith. I'm not challenging you today to do something dramatic. I'm just saying maybe you should start by just going down the road, being a friend. sharing the bond in Christ. Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ made peace for us. And then the text says, thirdly, Jesus Christ preaches peace to all. There is peace in the person and work of Christ. But verses 17 and 18 tell us there there is also peace in the message of Christ. We receive the message of peace through Christ. Verse 17 says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. When did Christ preach peace? The the obvious answer would seem to be during his earthly ministry, but that doesn't seem to be what Paul is saying here. Christ occasionally ministered to Gentiles, but his earthly ministry focused on what he called the lost house of Israel. Furthermore, verses 14 through 16 are clear that Christ made peace by his death 
at the cross. So verse 17 most likely points beyond the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus to the ministry of the early church. In a real sense, this is an affirmation of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To whom did Christ preach peace? Verse 17 answers, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Gentiles were far off. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles were far off. The Jews were near. Christ preached peace to both. This is the sovereign grace of God. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But here, Paul reverses the order and says, Christ preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Sin places us all on equal levels. Days of Noah, some may have lived on high mountains, others in low valleys, but when the rains fell and the floods rose, everyone died in the flood waters who were not on the ark with Noah. So it is with Christ. It doesn't matter if you are near or far. If you are in Christ, you are saved and safe and secure. Luke 15, verses 11 through 32 prodigal son was lost in the far country, but the elder brother was lost in the backyard. One was far, one was near, yet both sons needed to be reconciled to the father. So it is with Christ. Some, some may waste their lives in nightclubs, others may waste their lives on church pews. Far is not too far, and near is not close enough. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So we receive the message of peace through Christ. We enjoy the privilege of peace through Christ. God is one in essence, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are co-essential, co-equal, and co-eternal. Verse 18 affirms this triunity of God, for through him, Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Through God the Son, Jews and Gentiles have access in God the Holy Spirit to God the Father. All three members of the Godhead were at work to make Jews and Gentiles a new race of people called the church. God the Father planned it. God the Son accomplished it. God the Holy Spirit sustains it. Keyword, verse 18, is access. It means to bring near. 
Greek term was the title for the person who introduced visitors to a ruler in the ancient world. The focus here is on the result, not the process. Christ's work is the believer's privilege. Sinners have no access to God. Verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12 says, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. During the planning of our merger, we went through a series of meetings. I had a Q&A session one Sunday afternoon with the uh, members of the Ridgewood Church who just wanted to get to know, I guess, the guy who would end up being their new pastor. Question after question after question after question. Pastor standing next to me said, well, we're going to wrap up. Any more questions before we quit? And one old brother in the back stood up and said, yeah, I got a question for the young man. He said, now, if we, if we, if we become one church, I just want to know one thing. Are you still going to let us do the beast feast? I thought he was joking. He was not joking. Feature in the church's life was that every year they had this beast feast. Don't look at me like that. It is what it sounds. <laughs> they, would, they would catch and kill animals and cook up on the, on the lot. Men would just come eat meat. Someone would present the gospel. And he wanted to know if we came together... Would they still get to do the beast feast? I gave them the best Baptist pastor answer I could. I told them, we'll pray about it. (laughs) 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 The meeting ended shortly after that. Old dear lady stood up and said, I have a few questions. She asked me what I believed about the gospel. She asked me about our church's statement of faith. She asked me where I stood on the Bible. And once I answered those questions, as strange as they were for me to hear them, when I answered those questions, she just turned around to the congregation and said, well, why are we still talking, church? He believes what we believe. What else matters? I wish that sister could go to a whole lot of churches and ask that question. After the service, the old man came up just to make sure. He wanted to make sure I wasn't offended. He just told me how God used that event over the years to win a lot of men to Christ. And he was just praying that we would consider it going forward because of the impact that it had in the community. And he said, he said, Reverend, I know, I know it may sound like a 
redneck idea to you. But we all rednecks because we covered by the blood of Jesus. We were standing huddled in the parking lot getting ready to leave a couple of the elders of the church. And I told them what just happened. No one believed me. I said, there he is. I said, brother, come here. Tell him what you just told me. I didn't have to specify. He knew. He said to all of the elders, you a redneck, you a redneck, you a, we all rednecks. Because we're all covered by the blood of Jesus. Indeed, we are. And only Jesus can bring peace with God and with one another. How to reach the masses, men of every birth. For the answer, Jesus gave the key. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Oh, the world is hungry for the living bread. Lift the Savior up for them to see. Trust him and do not doubt the word that he said. I'll draw all men unto me. Don't exalt the preacher. Don't exalt the pew. Preach the gospel simple, full, and free. Prove him and you will find that his promise is true. I'll draw all men unto me. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the fact that we may call you our Father in heaven. Because of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood and righteousness opens for us a new and living way to you. We thank you that by the blood of his cross, you have reconciled us sinners to yourself and declared us righteous in him. You've also entrusted to us the message of reconciliation with this lost world and have called the church to be witnesses of the difference Jesus makes, ambassadors of Christ, representatives of the kingdom of heaven. Would you help us, Lord, to live out the life of the gospel in this watching world that needs to know the hope and truth and good news of Jesus Christ. Would you forgive us for rebuilding walls that the blood of Christ has torn down? Help us, Lord, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To your glory we pray. Amen.